One of my favorite movies, and it might be a little bit of a, of a weird one, uh, probably top 10, is a movie called The Patriot. I don't know if anybody's seen it with Mel Gibson, The Patriot. If you haven't seen it, it's essentially like an American Braveheart. If you watch both of them next to each other, it's, it really is scary how similar movies they are, right? They're both fighting the same country, actually, if you think about it. Mel Gibson's in both of them. Um, in both of them, his accent is eh, right? But the movies are still phenomenal, right? What we, I, I love movies that have like this war underdog theme, right? We have all these things like the American colonies are trying to rise against the British, and they are so clearly outgunned, outnumbered, that there just seems to be no hope. And when you watch these kinds of movies, these war movies, there's one thing that every one of them has in common besides epic battle scenes. Um, at some point in the movie, the, the main character is going to give a killer pump-up speech. Right? They're going to get in front of their soldiers who, like, five minutes ago had no desire to fight and are ready to turn and run. They're going to say, like, three minutes of something, and then somehow, like, 20,000 people's minds will be changed instantly. I wish... I had that gift as a preacher. That'd be great. Right? People come thinking one thing and they all leave united. But that's what happens. There's this pump-up speech. And it really, it, it does two things. Number one, it spurs the soldiers on to fight, right? either to death or to victory. Right? There's always some kind of like, if you die, at least you'll die a free man or something like that. And then the second is, it reminds them what they are fighting for. Right? In the case of both the Patriot and Braveheart, they're fighting for freedom. He's saying, yeah, if you run away, you might live for a time, but you'll never be free. And so that's the cause. There's always that. There's the cause, and there's this motivation and spur on to fight, and it gets them riled up. And then we look at Scripture, Paul is the king of pump-up speeches. Paul gives a Braveheart or Patriot-level speech, like in every book that he writes at some point. Read the letters of Paul, and you'll see it. Inevitably in there, there's this spur to, you know, fight the good fight. Right? Those kinds of things are constant as Paul writes his letters. And today we're going to look at one of them in the book of 2 Timothy. So if you have a Bible in front of you in the pew back, grab it. I know we put things up on the screen, but it's always nice to have a Bible in your hand and, and read along. Uh, if, by the way, you're new here or you've been here forever and you don't own a Bible, the one that's in front of you, that's our gift to you. Why don't you just take that, take it home, write your name in it. We'll buy new ones. Somewhere the finance team is going, I don't care. <laughs> Take that home, it's our gift to you. If you are in this building today and you do not own a Bible, we're going to fix that right here, right now. That is your present. It's a wonderful CSB Bible. There's some, some notes and things in there. It's great. Take it home and read it cover to cover, and we'll see you next week. <laughs> right? In the book of 2 Timothy, Paul uses this analogy as he speaks to him in, in the second chapter of soldiering on. And he likes to use this a lot. Paul loves to talk about the Christian life as, as war and as struggle, as battle, and in the frame of Christians being soldiers. He does it all the time. If you want evidence of that, just go to the end of Ephesians, and he actually starts to even break down the armor of the soldier in relation to how we are to use it, right? The armor of God, right? The breastplate of right, like these beautiful things, you know, the sword of, and all these analogies. He loves to use wartime and battle analogy and this one's no different. So let's, let's look at it together and we'll, we'll dissect as we go. There we go. You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, 
Entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Share in the suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits, since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. An athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. And it's the hardworking farmer who ought to have the first share of the crops. Think over what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. And remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel, for which I am suffering. Bound with chains as a criminal, but the word of God is not bound. And therefore I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. The saying is trustworthy, for if we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he will also deny us. And if we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. Remind them of these things and charge them before God not to quarrel about words, which does no good, but only ruins the hearers. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. But avoid irreverent babble. I love that word. For it will lead people into more and more ungodliness, and their talk will spread like gangrene. This analogy in verse 3, suffering as a good soldier, right? He challenges him to do this. There's, there's this idea in, in the first chapter, before we get here, where, where he's challenging Timothy to guard the deposit entrusted to him. This gospel message that has been entrusted to Timothy. He is to guard it at all costs. And in the first chapter, the way that he's to guard it, like it's described as we get into here, and he says, number one, entrust it to faithful men so that it will spread. Right, so take this gospel and make sure a bunch of faithful men have it. You're not the only one. Don't keep it to yourself. Make sure everyone's got it that's faithful. And then second, you entrust, you guard this deposit. You guard the gospel by sharing in suffering. Who here is excited about that? You came this morning and you're like, you know, I'm just excited to do some suffering for the gospel today. That's how, that sounds like a way that I want to spend my time. No one thinks that way. But that's what he says. He says, if you want to know how do we guard the gospel, well, we suffer as good soldiers. And here, this metaphor for, for him, it does two things. Why would Paul call us soldiers and the Christians of his day? Right? Number one, it makes abundantly clear that we as Christians are in a time of war and battle. We don't feel that way. All of us today got up Hopefully, most of us presumably had food to eat and breakfast on the table. We came here. We're with the people we love, our friends and family of our church. We sing songs. We're joyful. This does not feel like wartime, does it? But that's what Paul is telling us. We, in this very moment, as they were in the time of this letter to Timothy, we're at war. And he calls us soldiers to drive that point home. And here's the thing. Wartime is different than peacetime. If you have lived through a major war, raise your hand. Whether you've gone to serve or you've just been here living through it, raise your hand. Right. Especially if you talk to, the, to, to generations that are older, and sadly the, the generation of World War II is kind of dying out 
as, as we're going now, one of the things you'll find is the way that our country functions in wartime, in significant wartime, is way different. There's sacrifices that are made that aren't normally made. Right? The things don't operate. War and peace are very different times. We give up things that we normally wouldn't give up. We lay down comforts that we normally wouldn't be willing to lay down. War means it's a battle cry for everyone to get involved. Right? If you look during the times of the world wars, right, the men would go off to fight, the women would go work in the factories and help make tanks so that they could go fight more, so that victory could be achieved. Battle looks different. And here's the second. By calling us soldiers, he gives our suffering a purpose. And that's a big one. Right? I don't know about you, I am far more able to suffer with some type of ease, not perfect ease, but some type of ease, if I know that there is a purpose and reason and goal behind my suffering. Right? If you were to say to me, go outside right now and throw yourself in front of traffic, I would say you're crazy. I would probably kick you and run away. But if you were to say to me, my two-year-old is in the middle of traffic, and the only way to save him is to throw yourself in his, heart, in his way and shove him out, I'll get hit by a bus today. I, I won't even think about it. Right? I'm far more apt and willing to struggle and suffer through life if I know that there is a goal and a purpose. And so when Paul calls us soldiers to be good soldiers and suffer for Christ, we are given that purpose and that call to war, all in one. We as Christians are not just pointlessly miserable. The suffering and struggles in your life that you're going through, even though they might in the moment in its little isolated box seem like there's no purpose behind them, we do not suffer hopelessly or pointlessly. There is a reason for it. And we'll get into that a little bit more in a moment. And so in three, he calls us to that. Verse four, no soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since it's the aim to please the one who enlisted him. And then he gives an example of an athlete and an example of a farmer. I love when Paul does stuff like this. He's describing to us what it requires, what it looks like to be a good soldier. And just in case the war metaphor is not your boat, he uses an athlete metaphor and a farming metaphor. Right? In the time of Timothy, when that letter came through and he was reading it, chances are one of those three things is going to speak to the person that, that's, that's hearing the letter. Right? It's going to encourage them in some way. You might think, well, I've never gone to war. I don't know what it's like to be in war. Well, maybe you've played sports and you know what it's like to be an athlete. I don't know, maybe you were a farmer. It's a little less of a relevant example today for most people than it was back then. Right? But he tells us that being a good soldier requires a single-minded devotion to the goal. Right? What he's saying is soldiers don't worry about what's happening in the world, what they're doing. They're worried about what their game plan is and what they're doing. They are trained to execute their mission, and they go in and they do it, and they're laser-focused on that mission, on the person who is above them, and they do what they're commanded to do. It's the first thing they teach you when you get in the armed forces, right? You do not question higher authority. What they tell you, you carry out. Oh, but there's other people who say it doesn't matter. A single-minded devotion. In athletics, it's the same thing. As athletes, you have a laser focus. You have to play by the rules. You can be the greatest dunker in the history of basketball. If you travel while you play, you're not going to do anything. You are not going to be the next LeBron. Even if you play by the rules, chances are none of us are going to be the next LeBron. But right? 
Certainly not if you don't play by the rules. The farmer who works hard, who gets up in the morning, who puts, down, who puts up his tools before everyone else, who's the last to quit, who's diligent, who's faithful, who day by day goes through the monotonous things that need to be done to train themselves and to work the soil and to work the land, they are the ones who should reap first because they are the ones who did all the work. Right? We have to, as people, as soldiers of God, have the single-minded devotion towards battle, towards what God calls us to. So if it's true that we are soldiers, Paul says we are, and if it's true that we're at war, Paul says we are, then our number one focus should be how do we get victory in the war that we are called to wage, in the battle that we're stuck in, in the muck and in the mire in which we find ourselves. We focus on what Christ calls us to. Laser focus. Everything else kind of fades to the background. Then we get to verses 7 through 9, really 7 through 13. There's this inclusio in this this section, in the 7 through 13 section, where the beginning of it and the end of it have similar messages, and then verse 10 is kind of the hinge point. In the first verses here, in 7 through 9, Paul is hinting at the hope that we have for victory as we wage war as God's soldiers, right? What does he say? Think over what I say. Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David. What's the first hint? Christ himself, who we serve, who is our general, achieved victory over death. That's that's the hope that we're given. Then verse 10 gives us Paul's reason for why we fight. And then 11 through 13 reiterates this hope. So our hope for victory is that Christ rose from the dead. He beat the grave. Jesus Christ beat the grave. And through him we will too. Paul says then later on that he himself is bound in chains. But that the word of God can't be bound. By the way, this is why he says you should carry the deposit and entrust it to faithful men. Because one of the beauties of the gospel that we serve under is it's not dependent on a single person or entity. Right? I share the gospel here on Sunday mornings. You hear the gospel. I could be in prison tomorrow. Do you think the gospel is not going to go out from this church? Please. You guys wouldn't let that happen. Right? Paul might be bound, but the word of God goes forth. And if you want evidence of that, Timothy is reading a letter right now of the word that has gone forth as Paul is in chains. The gospel always finds a way, no matter what. Verse 10. This is the kind of center of the hope sandwich, so to say. And Paul takes a break to give us the reason for suffering and struggling. Why do we soldier on? What's the point? Right? He tells us that we fight, or he fights, so that the elect may also obtain salvation in Christ. And there's a problem with this passage. Not really, but a perceived problem with this passage. We believe as, as Reformed Christians that God calls people, right? He, the people that God chooses to save are those that are elect. They're not chosen by any specific reason or fervor. There's nothing that they've done to earn it. But there are people that God saves and there are people that God does not save. That he is elected not to save. And so those that are elected, we believe that they cannot escape the, the grace and the mercy of God, right? As we go through the, the Calvin theology of, of Tulip, right? One of them is irresistible grace. That if God calls you, you could, cannot resist it. And so what this means is that the Lord knows every single person, past, present, and future, whom he will save. 
It's done. It's set. And so the question is, well, why on earth do we have to fight? Or for that matter, engage in mission work. Why do we evangelize? Why do we care about our neighbors and them knowing Christ? If God wants them saved, they'll be saved. What's the point of the war? Right? The other thing we know, and this is where the metaphor of the patriot and, and braveheart goes away, they had no idea going into battle how it would turn out. As a matter of fact, they probably thought it wasn't going to go their way. Right? I guarantee you, most of the, most of the colonial army didn't think they were going to become an independent nation as they were fighting. They were hopeful, but it didn't look good. We, in our war and our battle as soldiers of Christ, have an advantage that we know the outcome. We're fighting a war that we know we're going to win. Now, in one way, that's good. Right? When things get hard, we know that there's ultimate victory. We can trust in, in Christ who has gone before us, who has suffered and died and, and beaten death so that as we struggle through life, we know that we serve one who knows our suffering and who promises us that we can't not in the end be beat. There will be victory. That's helpful. It gives us hope. But on the other hand, it creates a lot of apathy too. Right? We're not as motivated in the fight because we know how it turns out. So like, do I really have to get my spear? And if I don't, it'll still happen, right? So why bother? That's a conundrum. That's a hard thing. So Paul tells us he is willing to suffer so that the elect that would already be saved anyway will still be saved. So why? Why suffer? Can we all just have happy lives? Live in health and wealth and just let the Lord do his thing? No, here's why. We get the answer in 11 through 13. The process of salvation of the world, the way that God has chosen, right? God saves and God alone saves, but the way that he has chosen to bring his salvation through is through us. He invites us to be participants in the evangelizing and the calling of his people. And so there is a neighbor in your cul-de-sac or neighborhood that the Lord is going to call there's a person in your family who doesn't know the Lord who he is going to call. But he's chosen to use you to call. He doesn't just let us be bystanders in his great story. But he calls us soldiers. He tells us, you are going to be a part of what I'm doing. I could save people any way I wanted to. But this is how I've chosen to do it. And so he tells us what? The saying is trustworthy. If we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he'll deny us. And if we are faithless, he's still going to remain faithful. We, in every way, we are called to follow the pattern of Christ. We've talked about this numerous times. The way of the Christian life is to follow in the example that Christ has set. As Christ ministered on this earth, he met resistance he struggled through life. He had suffering. He had pain. He was betrayed by the people he loved, the very people he came to save. He was hung on a cross and he struggled to the point of death. He died, but then he rose. And we follow that same pattern. I have potentially bad news for you if you didn't know this already, but every one of you in this room, you're going to die. And someone's going to say, well, but Elijah... I hate when people make the, accept, you know, the exception of the rule. 
Maybe somebody in this room will be magically lifted up and, and just be part of the kingdom that way. But chances are you're going to die. You're going to experience the sting of death just as Christ did. It's probably not going to be the prettiest day. But what comes after, right? As Christ died and rose, so we will die and rise with him. As Christ reigns, so we will reign with him. We are called to follow the pattern. When Jesus came, he didn't just come and do what he did to save sinners. He came and did what he did to set an example for his people that as he did, we will also do. And by the way, even if we lose faith and hope in the midst of it, as his people, he remains faithful. That's the end of that section. That's the pattern that he set for us. That we soldier on for Christ. And so... In the next final section, in these 14 through 17a, what Paul then does is get a little bit practical. He tells us, well, what, what do we do? What does it look like to be the soldier that suffers for Christ? Well, it's mostly about quarreling. He says this, since we're called to suffer, how do we do it well? We are not to quarrel about words. Paul speaks about quarreling. He likes, he likes that word. He uses it very often. If we go back to 1 Timothy chapter 6, he, he talks about false teachers who always quarrel. And he says that quarreling does a lot of damage. It's done by those who like to complain. It creates this unhealthy craving for controversy. The people that quarrel have this unhealthy craving. They love the controversy. They like to bicker. They like to stir up stuff. They like to get pity. And these quarrels, they create destructive things like envy and dissension and division and suspicion and friction in the world. And so Paul tells us, how, how do we suffer well as soldiers of Christ? We do not quarrel. And instead, we cease quarreling. We present ourselves as one approved The irreverent babble that we have will only lead people away from God. And then he says that babble spreads like gangrene. We were talking about this verse in session meeting, and one of the elders pointed out that gangrene is just dead flesh. Right? When we quarrel in the midst of our pain, the thing that we're called to do, the way that we're called to live out our Christian life, if we walk through life and we're constantly quarreling and, and using our words to babble nonsense and, and complain all the time, it's essentially creating dead flesh. You're spreading death. Right? It's a harsh reality to get around. That's, that's not a weak word from Paul. When you pull out stuff like gangrene, you mean business. And Paul means business. Here's the thing. We are soldiers that are called to share in our suffering. Suffering as Christians is a promised reality. It's not an easy life. But we know who's going to win. We know that we'll be victorious. This is part of the reason that, you know, we talk about the prosperity gospel being preached in the world today. Part of why this is so damaging and so destructive in our world is because you have churches throughout the world that are teaching that if you just come and follow Jesus, if you give your life to him, and by the way, tithe to us, then you will experience nothing but health and prosperity. And all will be great. And here's the problem. All isn't great. It just isn't. Anyone here the last five years, no pain, no struggle, no suffering, everything's been wonderful? I don't think so. 
Suffering is a promised reality. And when you have a place that promises nothing but health and wealth, what happens inevitably is when people no longer experience it, or they never experience it in the first place, one of two things happen. Either A, they're made to feel like, well, they're not faithful enough. You need more faith. And maybe some more giving, too. Right? Oh, you're only giving 3%? Well, yeah, the health and wealth doesn't kick in until 10 Right? Either that happens or people forsake the faith. By the way, the number one reason that people either A, don't, don't join the gospel and submit their lives to Christ to begin with, or B, the reason people leave the faith who've been walking with him for years are because of some major suffering or struggling event. Life's great. They're following God and then their world falls apart. And they shake their fists at the heaven and they go, where are you now? I thought I was supposed to be healthy and wealthy. You must not be real. It's goodbye. It's one of the most detrimental things. We as soldiers of Christ, in the midst of our suffering, that by the way, Scripture promises us we will endure, are called to suffer well, to suffer with dignity and to suffer with hope, and to struggle with the hope that Christ has for victory because he has already won. It's what we call in scripture, in theological terms, the already but not yet. We live in a world where victory is already won, but not yet fully realized. It's like the person who's won the lottery, but is told you're not going to get it for 40 years. Except for we don't know the time. And so he calls us to suffer. And here's the key. The hard truth is this. Your struggle as a follower of Christ... The things that God is putting you through or allowing you to go through, how you handle those is one of the greatest opportunities that you have for witness in this world. People will watch how you handle struggle. And if you walk through hard times, and this doesn't mean that you never get to be weary or tired in your suffering. This doesn't mean that people of the church, we don't come alongside of each other in our struggles and we support each other and we walk through them. You're not supposed to just suck it up, princess. That's not what this is saying. But as we suffer and as we struggle, as soldiers for the gospel, we do it with a hope. We do it with a mindset on Christ who already achieved the victory so that when stuff comes and we are in the world around us and people say, oh my gosh, what are you going to do? Your response is, I know exactly what I'm going to do. I'm going to put my faith and hope in the one who's going to win in the end. And whatever is happening right now, whatever my issue is, whatever my struggle is, whatever pain I'm experiencing, whatever fear and anxiety and issues that I'm walking through, I trust that the Lord has me. And that even unto death, nothing can touch me in the end. And we walk with that hope. And when we do that, people in this world will take notice. It is a foreign concept to not whine in the midst of our struggle, to just complain and have that spirit of complaint, but instead to live in hope that he will carry us through. And so if, if this speaks to you this morning, if you are somebody who is in the midst of incredibly rough times, you come here, you sit as part of the body, you rely on your fellow brothers and sisters in Christ to help carry you through, and you walk into the world refreshed and renewed by this community. 
and you proclaim the hope that you have in the midst of it. I guarantee you people will take notice. That's not something people are used to in this world. When suffering happens apart from Christ, there's hopelessness. When suffering happens for the brothers and sisters of Christ, it's an opportunity to share the hope that he has in victory. I would ask that you pray as you go home through the things that you're struggling with, through the suffering that you're experiencing, through the fears and anxieties and and challenges that lie before you and your family. Maybe pray as a family and give those things to the Lord. And then when people ask you how you're doing, you know, not that great. This and this and this is going on, but I have hope. You don't seem all that worried about it. Well, I'm not, because I serve the God who's got it in the palm of his hand. And he will care for me, because he always has, and he always will. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you are a God of hope. Lord, we in no way want to belittle the issues that we face as your people. Even today, we are, this room represents an unbelievable amount of pain and suffering and struggle and fear. And so, Lord, this morning, we give those things to you. We lay them down at the foot of the cross. We proclaim that you have victory over our struggles. That even though we suffer now, that there comes a time where we will live with you in glory, where there will be no more suffering and no more pain. No more strife and no more division, no more anger, but only joy. We long for that day and we say, come Lord Jesus, come soon, come today, come before this prayer is over. But if not, as you call us to go into this world, we pray for a measure of your spirit that we might have the strength to face our issues and our struggles, that we might proclaim your hope in the midst of them so that people, as Paul says, so that the elect might come to saving faith in Christ. Thank you that you use us as part of your kingdom, that we are an instrument of your grace in the world. We pray that you use each of us, that you send us to our workplaces, our neighborhoods, our schools, our families, that we might proclaim your gospel truth. Be with us as we go out and are scattered as your people. We love you and praise you. And all his people said,